Now, what we're doing uh, each Sunday in the run-up to Christmas is we are looking at the Gospel of Matthew. Um, it's one of the long, larger Gospels, 28 chapters. We can't look at every verse. So what we're doing is taking a look at some of the main themes in the Gospel. And today we come to the theme of response and the many different responses we see to Jesus Christ. For me at university, it was a book called Turning Points by a Christian minister, Vaughan Roberts, that was hugely influential in my own Christian journey and putting my faith in Jesus Christ. And once I did, and keen for others, friends, family, to know about Jesus, I thought, well, that's obvious, I just need to give them this book, and that will do it all for them. And I had two close mates at university, gave them both the book, one of them threw it in the bin straight away. The other one did manage to read it, came back to me, said, Mark, I don't know what all the fuss is about. Identical book. Same book, same message about Jesus Christ, but three very different responses to Jesus. I don't know if you've ever experienced something similar. Perhaps you've invited a couple of friends along to a carol service, and perhaps to one of our events in the crypt, and one of your friends is intrigued and is interested and wants to find out more, and the other one's just distracted, (laughs) uninterested, and wants to go home as soon as they can. It's the same event. It's the same speaker, it's the same message, but two very different responses. Perhaps you've known someone who, as far as you were aware, was a firm believer in Jesus Christ, going strong with the Lord. But then suddenly, seemingly out of the blue, gives it all up, says, I don't believe in this anymore. And you're left confused, you're left shocked. From the outside, it looked like everything was okay. And now you're thinking, what was really going on inside? Well, if you've been following our series in in Matthew's Gospel so far, you will know that some of the people you would most expect to believe in Jesus Christ, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, the teachers of the law, they're waiting for the Messiah. The Messiah is here. And yet, what were they plotting to do in chapter 12, which we looked at last week. Kill Jesus. And you might be thinking, like, why? What is going on? Why such hostility? Why is it that some people believe in Jesus, like the disciples, but others, like the Pharisees, don't? How do you explain, whether it's today in our own lives or back then, these different responses to Jesus Christ? Well, that's what this passage is about. Two things for us to see. The why of different responses to Jesus Christ. And then we'll look at the what of different responses to Jesus Christ. So first, the why. This is verses 10 to 17, if you've got the Bible open on your phone. Because at the start of chapter 13, Jesus starts speaking in parables. And he begins with this famous parable of the sower. A farmer sowing his seed, the seed falling in four different places, the path where it's eaten up, the rocky places where it is scorched, the thorns where it's choked, and then the good soil where there's this bountiful crop. That is verses 1 to 9. And then in verse 10, do you notice, the disciples asked Jesus this question. Why do you speak to the people in parables? And I wonder, how would you answer that question? Like when, I, when you hear the word parable, what instinctively do you think? For many people, they think it's like a simple illustration, a word picture. 
You take something that's very common in life back then, a farmer sowing his seed, everyone understands that, and you use it to help explain some hard-to-understand truth. You know, an earthly story to reveal a heavenly truth. Ever heard that? Is that what you think of parables? Many people do. What then do you make of Jesus' own answer to this question in verse 11? Jesus replies, Because the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven have been given to you, you disciples, and not to them, Whoever has will be given more, and they will have an abundance. I'm about to explain it to you disciples, this parable. But whoever does not have, like the Pharisees who don't trust in me, even what they have, their religious heritage, all the background, of the art, all of that will be taken from them. This is why I speak to them in parables. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. Now, we must not soften what Jesus is saying here. That one of the reasons why he speaks in parables is to confirm people in their unbelief. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. Jesus knows that deep down in every human heart is a fundamental bias away from him. That ever since Adam and Eve turned their back on God to go it alone, so it is for every member of the human race. That we are not neutral when it comes to matters of faith. I'm just sitting on the fence. I could believe, I might not believe. No. There is a fundamental bias, a disposition of the heart to push back against the truth about Jesus Christ. And if that comes as a shock to us, Jesus continues in verse 14 and says, look, I'm saying nothing new. Let me quote from Isaiah. In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. You will be hearing but never understanding. You'll be ever seeing but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts and turn and I would heal them. Now this is strong stuff. But it is really important for us to see that as Jesus confirms certain people in their unbelief, it's not because he doesn't want them to believe in him. Of course not. That's why he's come. That's why he's sent out the 12 on mission back in chapter 10. That's why he'll die on the cross. So people will turn and be healed by him. But what Jesus is doing here is showing us why certain people reject him, like the Pharisees. And it is not because they can't believe in him that they lack evidence, that they lack information, that they lack some rational argumentation for Jesus Christ. But that fundamentally, they do not deep down in their hearts want to believe in him. Their hearts have become calloused. Verse 15. 
One of the baseline beliefs of the Western world right now is that we are fundamentally rational beings. That first and foremost, or ultimately, we make decisions based on logical, rational thinking. But all the evidence around us, particularly if you are familiar with the work of MIT behavioral scientist Dan Ariely, is that we are easily manipulated by our heart's desires. That free for two offer at the supermarket, even when you know you can't afford it, even though you know you don't need that third pack of chicken Kievs, but you know, you go for it anyway, it just sounds good offer. That new expensive perfume, you know you don't need it, you've got plenty already, it smells very good. But you know, it's endorsed by so-and-so. And they promise that if you have this perfume, wow, it's going to be transformative for your relationships. That upgrade to iPhone 12, even though you have the 11, you have the 10, I have the 8, I'm really tempted by the 12. Even though, rationally speaking, I know that like at a cost of whatever it is, 750, 800 quid, I don't really need those extra benefits. Those added features, we are so easily manipulated by the advertisers. They know how to nudge us, move us, influence our behavior, even though they know what they are saying is not based on rational thinking. One of the big problems in society at the moment is the problem of gambling. Where I think if you ask most people who are involved in it, who succumb to it, an addiction to it, they will tell you, look, I know, rationally speaking, like the house always wins. The UK Lotto, I was looking this up online, one in 14 million chance of winning the lottery. You would have to play it 14 million times on average to have a rational chance of winning. And people play it, and we play it. Why? Because it's going to be different for us. Because someone's got to win. Because it could be you. Remember that advert, the cloud finger? Oh, but you say it's not just the whole, the big prizes, well, the little prizes as well. One in 54. Let me just say, nothing wrong with a bit of fun, a flutter, once a year, on the Grand National, whatever, with mates, something with money you can afford. But, you know, it's the doubling down, it's that burning desire to go in for more, it's the compulsive behaviour against overwhelming odds. Which shows we are not half as rational as we think we are. And we are driven by much deeper desires. And so it is when it comes to Jesus Christ. The Pharisees, they do not deny the miracles that Jesus has been forming, performing. Don't deny the hearing, healing of the paralytic. Don't deny the man with the shriveled hand getting his hand back. Do not deny his comprehensive understanding of the law, his wisdom, his goodness, all that Jesus is doing right before their eyes. And what is their response? As I said earlier, last week in chapter 12, they plot to kill him. That is not rational behavior. That is people driven by a deeper desire for reputation, approval, power. How many times have you discovered with a friend, family member, if they've allowed you to dig a little deep about what's going on with their, 
sort of belief or, or in this case unbelief in Jesus Christ. How often actually do you find when you dig into it, it's not about the objective truths about Jesus, his life, his death, the evidence for the resurrection, the reliability of the New Testament gospel. Actually, when you really dig into it, what's going on is there is a fundamental fear of what it might mean for their career or what it might mean for a relationship or a concern of what other people think of them. It's not that people can't believe in Jesus. He says, open your eyes, see, come. I'll heal you. Is that fundamentally, deep down, people do not want to believe in him. And their hearts have become calloused. Noted atheist and philosopher Thomas Nagel in his book, The Last Word, openly admitted, and I'm paraphrasing here, he said, it's not that there can't be a God. He said, quote, I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. Even though Jesus is the most loving, gracious, merciful, just, holy, good person you will ever meet, who made us, knows best for us, wants best for us, and died for us. Some people still want to be in ultimate control of their lives and have the last word on it. And so can I ask, what is the state of your heart right now? Because it does not matter how many facts, evidence, rationale for belief in Jesus is put before you, if you do not want there to be a God, if you do not want a universe to be like that, you will, you will never believe in Jesus Christ. You will only ever be confirmed in your unbelief. And that's the why of different responses to Jesus. Let's move on secondly to the what of different responses to Jesus. What are they? How do we make sure our hearts are in the right place? What does that mean exactly? Jesus explains it all now, not to the crowds, but to the disciples. They don't understand the power of the sir. They need Jesus to explain it to them. He does so in verses 18 to 23. He says, the seed's the message about the kingdom, the soil is the human heart, and there are four different kinds of responses to him. So let's look at each of them in turn. First, the seed along the path. This is verse 18. Listen then to what the parable of the sower means. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in their heart. This is the seed sown along the path. So the first thing that Jesus wants us to see here is the spiritual dynamic at work in each person's response to Jesus Christ. And do you see there is spiritual opposition to anyone putting their faith in Jesus Christ? And so it could be you invite someone along to church and they say, yes, but then suddenly something comes up on the day or the clash in the diary. Suddenly they can't make it and the, the seed is snatched away before it's actually even been sown. Or you invite along someone to a talk 
here at church. And they are interested and they, and they want to find more, but then they're back into work on Monday and suddenly a new deal comes up and they're swamped with work and they're really busy and they can't get out and it's going to be going for a few weeks and before you know it, they've completely forgotten about the talk, just snatched away, right like that. Maybe you've known someone who was really close to putting their faith in Jesus Christ and starting to follow him. But then that very week, they randomly met someone, started going out, had this relationship, spend all their time with one another, and suddenly a relationship with Jesus just doesn't have that same attraction. Snatched away, Jesus says, by the evil one, that's the devil, who does not want any human being ever putting their faith in Jesus Christ. Do you see that spiritual dynamic at work? Because if you do, we need to pray. We need to pray for ourselves. Lord, open my eyes. Help me to see, to hear, to understand. Please, with the word, not be snatched from me. We need to pray for others. Lord, please, with the, the seed of your word, not be snatched from their heart. And for some here, if you're new to Christian things, you might think, my goodness, this talk of the devil, the evil one, that, that's a bit far-fetched. If that's you, delighted you're here. I want to draw your attention to a sermon earlier on in Matthew 4. The devil tempting Jesus. And Jesus absolutely clear, not just of the devil's existence, but the devil's real threat. But if that's not enough for you, would love to chat to you afterwards. I'll be here at the front and we can talk some more about this. Nothing more important than knowing this spiritual dynamic, this opposition to the most important decision anyone could ever make. The second response is the seed on rocky ground, verse 20. The seed falling on rocky ground refers to someone who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. This is the response of mere emotionalism. Okay, nothing wrong with emotions. God has made us emotional beings. And we are made to enjoy a relationship with God. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, etc. Nothing wrong with emotions. This is mere emotionalism, mere excitement at the start, but no idea of the cost of following Jesus Christ so that when trouble comes or persecution comes specifically for being a follower of Jesus Christ, they quickly fall away. This is not something I have signed up for. I remember a friend at university who started following Jesus not long after me, said it was a no-brainer to follow Jesus, said he was bowled over by Jesus' love, his forgiveness, his presence with him, his power at work in his life, so joyful, so excited. But then some mates started to have a go at him, work really put the pressure on him, and he quickly fell away. Whenever we share the message of Jesus, we must be clear about the cost. Remember the second block of teaching, chapter 10. Jesus sending out his 12. What did he say? I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. That is, not a, that is a dangerous picture. 
The Christian life is hard going. There is a cost to your reputation, to your social standing, possibly to your career. But let's remember the first block of teaching as well in chapters 5 to 7. Blessed are those who are persecuted. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Yes, it is costly following Jesus Christ, but it is always worth it. And of course, we're in a time right now, some trouble right now, globally, nationally, here, with COVID. We are struggling to know how to be church, do church. Do not be surprised if one or two from this church family fall away from Jesus Christ. Of course we pray against it. Of course we point people to Jesus Christ, point them back to Jesus Christ. But you know what? Sometimes it is only once trouble or persecution comes to someone's life that you really get to see how genuine their faith in Jesus Christ really is. And this will be a refining process for all of us. The third response is the seed among the thorns, verse 22. The seed falling among the thorns refers to someone who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, making it unfruitful. So here is someone whose response is not superficial like the first one, not unaware of the cost of following Jesus Christ like the second one, and takes the message of Jesus to heart, literally and starts following Jesus Christ, but then slowly, over time, seems to lose, stops paying attention to their heart. And there are more important things that are the controlling factor in their lives and in their hearts. The worries of life, the deceitfulness of wealth. Career comes number one. Family becomes number one. Ministry comes number one rather than Jesus Christ staying number one as the thing they love and want more than anyone or anything else. I had a friend at a previous church. From all I could see, he was a firm believer. He was going strong in the Lord. He got posted to the Far East with work and suddenly he was away from Christian mates, away from Christian community and it was long hours. He was the only Christian in his team in the office, not much socializing, never got really stuck into church out there and and just stopped paying attention to his heart and the word slowly got choked in his life. And as far as I'm aware now, He is nowhere with the Lord. I can give you several examples of people who were stuck into a good church here in the center of London, but the desire for more space, larger home, garden for the kids, a better education, led them to move out of London, move away, even though they knew church life would be significantly diminished for them and over time the word was choked they stopped paying attention to what was going on in their heart Jesus being number one 
and they became more and more unfruitful. Now let me just say there's nothing wrong with a bit more space and a large house and a garden and a better education. These are good things. I mean, don't mishear me. But what's an idol? An idol is when a good thing, a gift from God, becomes an ultimate thing. So that Jesus Christ no longer has the central space in your life. And these other good things choke him out. Be be so careful. What's going on in your heart? The idols of control, the idols of comfort... If you're in a position of leadership, the idol of power, do not let them choke out the word of God from your heart and life. The fourth and final response is the seed in good soil, verse 23. But the seed falling on good soil refers to someone who hears the word and understands it. This is the one who produces a crop yielding 160 or 30 times what was sown. And the Greek word for understands here is sin imi, sin together imi put. So literally this Greek word means putting something all together into a comprehensive whole. It is the person who hears the message of Jesus but but understands it not just intellectually, but deep down in their heart's desires, emotionally, willfully, not just an intellectual understanding of sin, but a deep contrition over their own sin, even a mourning over their sin. And it leads to a genuine repentance from sin. This is the good soil. Not just an intellectual understanding of the death of Jesus Christ, but a wonder and amazement that Jesus Christ would do this for me. That he loves us this much. And so trust in him with everything and with your whole life. This is the good soil. Not just an intellectual understanding of the path to discipleship, but a faith-fueled, spirit-dependent reliance on Jesus Christ and obedience to his word which shapes all aspects of your life. That is the one who's fruitful. That is the one who sees much spiritual growth in their lives and the kingdom of God. Now, can I ask, is that you? Because out of, this is the only soil that matters in the end. The good soil. The only soil that counts. Are you being attentive to your heart? Are you still open to the word of God no matter how many years you've been following Jesus Christ? Are you trusting in him intellectually, of course, but emotionally, willfully? Are you putting him all together into a comprehensive whole in your life? I wonder what actions you need to take right now to make sure you are good soil and you have this bounteous, abundant crop in your life. Let me pray that for us now. Let's pray.
Father God, we thank you so much for the power of your word. So as we've just heard it, been sown into our lives right this second. We, we want to apply straight away this message. Would we not be hard-hearted to it? Do you soften our hearts? Would you open our eyes to, to see it, to hear it, to understand it? That we wouldn't be superficial with your word. We wouldn't be merely emotional with it. We wouldn't let other things in life, good gifts from you, choke out your word. But they would let it sink deep into our hearts and transform us from the inside out into all aspects of life. We pray it for the good of our souls and we pray it for the glory of your name. Amen.